podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Thanks for choosing this free Anfield Index podcast. If you'd prefer to listen to this or any of our other shows without adverts, then now's the time to check out Anfield Index Pro. With AI Pro, you can supercharge your entire listening experience. You'll not only get all of our podcasts without the ads, but you'll have them far faster with our quick publish feature available exclusively for subscribers. AI Pro also puts you in the heart of our sound studio with an option to listen to many of our shows live and interact with the podcasters in real time as the shows are recording. Upgrading couldn't be easier. AI Pro is available on all popular podcast platforms and we have our own apps for Apple and Android. Just head on over to AnfieldIndexPro.com and get started today. Hello everyone and welcome back to another pre-season edition of Rival Recon here on Anfield Index Pro. During this series we've been looking at what shape the top six Premier League sides are in as the season looms ever closer and with the Community Shield set to take place at Wembley tomorrow afternoon it's very much almost here. On today's pod we'll be diving into the weird and wonderful world of Manchester United as the Red Devils look to leave years of expensive dysfunction behind and rebuild for the future under new boss Eric Ten Hag. So joining me on the pod to help us navigate through a ton of topics, I'm delighted to welcome back on award-winning author and Manchester United correspondent for The Athletic, Carl Anker. Welcome back, Carl. Hello, how are you doing? Good to have you on again. Yeah, it's uh, not bad, not bad. We were both just before the, you know, we hit record uh, on this on this one. You know, uh, I think it's, it's, it's very different for both of us because obviously you're you know, you're working professionally in this sort of uh, covering each and every game and sort of like all different angles, especially for United. Uh, and the the season winding up again must feel, you know, must feel a certain way, feels a certain way for me as well, just, just covering it with the podcast that we do here on the, on the channel. But it feels like deep breath in as the season's about to start almost imminently with the Community Shield this weekend as well on Saturday. Uh, before we get into anything, how are you feeling? Oh, that summer really went by really quickly. You know, I sort of, yeah, you realise England, you know, the season finished, then you had England, a bunch of internationals in June that wrapped up around oh, about oh, mid-June. Yeah, those weird ones. Uh, yeah. And then obviously with the Women's Euros as well, which I followed more as a fan and civilian rather than a reporter, which is, Quite a treat, actually. Really enjoyed watching the Euros mm. from a living room rather than from the stadium, if that feels so strange. Uh, and then we're back at it again. I can't believe the Premier League starts in less than a week. And I think the this season is going to be mm. a unique challenge, not just for players, managers, and journalists, or whatever, but also for the fans. I think we're also it's going to be it's going to take a while to get used to. I think there'll be two or three tactical innovations that we're going to have to adjust our eyes for. Yeah, it's interesting. I think try and come onto that as well when we're talking about it in more in more detail. But yeah, I I I, I try to avoid the fixture list a little bit just because I wanted to sort of cut myself off from football for a bit longer. And then when I did look at it, I, re- I was reminded, oh right, yeah, this incredibly intense uh, opening few months before before the World Cup, obviously. Uh, very interesting to see how that works in a manner of of different ways, as you mentioned, from the fans from the fans' perspective, from a physical perspective, from a mental perspective, it's going to be yeah very interesting. But uh, to start on a more painful uh, topic, I suppose, and sort of going back um, to the end of last season, 
throughout those last 10 games. Sort of United, obviously, were in an interesting place, shall we say, um, winning just three and losing five out of those last 10 games. I think we we spoke at, at points that you know, sort of resembled more a group of individuals, uh, seemed sort of disinterested at times, disillusioned, uh, and a lot of them seemed quite desperate for the season to come come to a close so they could sort of start the rebuild, if you will. Um, not to sort of dwell on this for too long, even though it's a Liverpool podcast, and I'm sure people would love to sort of um, have me dwell here for a bit longer. But what do you make of the end of last season? Uh, which is if you can condense it into a short sort of a, uh, what did you make of it? Uh, and sort of briefly, what? Why do you think uh, there's a whole myriad myriad of reasons? But why do you think the Rangnick uh, appointment was ultimately an unsuccessful one? <laughs> the Rangnick experiment ultimately was a disaster. If you yeah. think it, if you think it interim manager, interim managers normally do one of two things. So the the most common interim manager is just there as a sort of HR department. They heal a fractured dressing room. Um, yeah. And Chelsea have been very good at that version of interim manager. So they have a very good... is very good at being you know, the interim manager. He comes in, arm around the shoulder. He he makes things tactically light, shall we say, uh, and not too stressful. Uh, and then the... Uh, and there was that. Ralph Reinick was not that character. He... We we know that United players were unsure about who he was when he was two or three of makes and he you know while he was known as the Godfather like in person he was also known for being a very combustible human being in German football he, he was never he's not really the person who um tells you you know chin up uh, and buys you uh, your favorite soft drink if you're feeling sad shall. So he wasn't that sort of interim manager. I think the, the other disappointment was he wasn't interim tactically either. So bring him in was he was wagon pressing. Jurgen Klopp said, you know, regrettably, but he his methods didn't take, and whether or not that was on the player or or, or the fact that he's coaching staff on Manchester United were not pressing. They were a very poor pressing side. I think they're PPDA, so uh, passes defense action, which is a statistic. I'm going to assume some of your listeners are more than acquainted with the PPDA for Manchester United. Rank was 14.9, which is nowhere near what Rennick would want, and nowhere near what uh, a team that wants to be in the Premier League uh, will be in the Champions League's one as well. So you found everything a nice improving the tactics, uh, and then obviously at the end of the season. Certain things became apparent. Um, what was going on in Chris Armand's uh, and it turned was being provided by someone working for free for Manchester United, almost as an impromptu consultant that Ralph Rang trusted implicitly, being fed over to Chris Armas. And there are more players that seem to be completely underwhelming. And what you got was just complete dissolving of what. Um, and I think a really good illustration of how last season was isn't necessarily the fact that you know, they finished sixth, isn't the fact that they goal is zero last season, but it's the fact that in August, August, Manchester United play against Brighton, who four goals past them, Liverpool, who put four goals past them, and Leicester, who put four goals past them. That's 
pretty galling. It's about sort of what, where you felt the team was in those last few months. I, I, I was touching upon it earlier on when I sort of mentioned that they they they, they resembled more sort of a group of individuals at at those stages. Um, I, mean, I mean, I think about the performance at uh, at Anfield especially, which again is, is the, the, the harshest of tests to face in that situation when you're already sort of dealing with a number of different issues in the camp. But it, it really did feel like towards the end of that season that because you knew a number of players were set to depart at the end of the season, because you knew that there was this new manager who was coming in, because there was almost an acceptance that this, this interim manager hadn't worked, it really did feel like the drifting started for quite a while. Is, is, is that fair to say? Yeah, so apparently, well, Manchester United went to that game playing, the, I think the initial formation was to play three at the back. And that was quickly abandoned at halftime. Phil Jones played against Liverpool in, at Anfield and he was substituted at halftime. And he was said to be very at being substituted and, and being made the scapegoat for, for a, a really dire first. Ralph Rennick at the end of the game said the plan very much to and to play in a compact ship against Liverpool, otherwise they'll get you a first goal to concede. They didn't pay attention to, to what was apparently the game the game plan was meant to happen, wasn't trained too much I care going into it. And and you just had to actually asked Michael Owen this before on that Anfield game. I said, considering the gap between these two teams, do you think be a chance Liverpool score two or three goals and then essentially declare and just recycle for 20 or 30 minutes. And he said, it, it feels like such a question to, 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 to think about, but yeah, very much. You could get between two clubs which is so large at the moment that Liverpool can effectively hold United safely at arm's length and not worry about conceding. Yeah, no, it certainly sort of felt that way. I think I think the one thing I took from that game, or, or I think the one thing that I remember from it most strongly was probably uh, I think sort of, it, was, it was one of Sadio Mane's put a highlights play of last season, but also yeah, I think it was it was it was pretty much the Thiago show as well. And I think uh, yeah, when you're talking about keeping people at at arm's length, yeah, that is a player who, if you have him in your team, is is very much capable of allowing you to yeah check back into second gear, whatever it might be, uh, and very much treat the game like that there was a yeah palpable difference between the two sides at that stage and yeah i think it's pretty clear sort of the work that needs to be done in, in order to bridge that gap but uh then of course toward the end of the season we get this news the appointment of of ten hag uh, as the as, as the new manager uh the reaction to it amongst the fan base um seemed to yeah, seem pretty positive but sort of impatient almost wanting to get started wanting to get going on it because there were still quite a few games to be to be played towards the end of the season. Um, I, I'm interested in your thoughts on on the appointment when it was first made, and sort of what you thought his, you know, his his suitability for the task at hand at United. And we'll we'll go into sort of what you thought those sort of core or priority objectives were that he he would ultimately be working on. But it, when it was when the appointment was first made, what were your thoughts on it, and, and sort of how how suitable did you think he was to the, the, the specific task that is sort of rebuilding Manchester United? My initial thought was one of quiet relief. Um, I really thought up until about Real Madrid versus Paris Saint-Germain that Mauricio the Manchester United manager. And I am of the belief that while Pochettino is a very good football coach, I think Ten Hag is slightly better than him. 
I think Ten Hag has a scalability to his things. So if you think about all the football managers, they often have uh, a, a playbook that you know they will. Um, and I think it took several years for Jurgen Klopp to get across at Liverpool. It took Guardiola a number of years and proper fullbacks that his methods across at Manchester City. And, and it took a while for Pochettino across at Tom Hotspur. And I think during that process where it took Pochettino to get Tottenham to be a Poch team, Tottenham were getting to losing in games they shouldn't have lost. And on the downturn, when Pochettino fresh the team and they were no and they were moving on to you know, team, he couldn't quite rebuild things quickly. And I think Ten Hag a little bit quicker at putting in checks and balances that in the process of turning an Ajax or a Manchester United into a ten. There, a little pragmatic edge to, to um, Nottingham Forest, so we say. Mm. Uh, so that was my initial thought. Then, of course, you get into the whole question of okay, you know, if you Manchester United have, have done very well and got a very good football manager, the only other question is there are also at least four other very good football managers in the Premier League. So you then ask, what's a very what's a game for Ten I know quite a lot of Manchester United fans are of the belief that you know, top qualification, but the waste Tottenham Hotspur is the waste this summer, you know, asterisks there continue to kick on. It's, if Manchester United are going to be in the next season, Ten Hag might pause over the World Cup and go, let's go all in. So those were my major thoughts there. I think the fan base at the moment, not positive pre-season tour, um, the victory in the Bangkok Century Cup, uh, over Liverpool and a 4 0 victory, mm. I think, has put a spring in everyone's step. Uh, and yes, obviously, you know, it, it was a different Liverpool team every 30 minutes. But United fans definitely needed that 4 0, especially after the defeat in Anfield. So, in terms of then what, what you saw as his you know, Ten Hag's sort of core objectives, I mean, this is all business speak language, but yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure there was a presentation given somewhere to some people around. Look, these are our issues. You know, how are you going to tackle them uh, during your first season as United manager? We don't expect you to do everything all at once. But if you were to sort of, you know, rank as I'm sure you did, and you're covering his um, his arrival as United boss, you know, these are the most these are these are the priority items you need to be working on and addressing. What were those? Um, what were those areas? And, and also, I suppose, what would the before we get on to talking about the transfer business so far, what were the areas of the squad that you thought, okay, very obvious here, we need to be addressing? I, I, have, I have a feeling I know one of them. <laughs> I think the most obvious one for me was central midfield, I think. Yeah. Uh, Manchester United have been short of, uh, and lack enforcements and upgrades in central midfield. Um, even if you're a Manchester United fan and you're of the belief that Fred and Scott McTominay are first team players and some of the best players in Europe, reasonably expect both men to play six games a season um, and while the partnership is often maligned by most Manchester United fans one big reason why last season was worse was because Fred and McTominay didn't feature in as many games together they are the you know maligned but often necessary bedrock upon which Manchester United play against so I thought that was the the the, the first priority Ten Hag needed to sort out how Ten Hag has looked into sorting that out has really surprised me. I thought he would go in, get himself a typical tackling, um, and then build from there. Whereas what looks like he's trying to do is bring in Frankie de Jong and have Frankie de Jong adventurous defensive player and play 
a double box to box system with with Fred. Um, whether that will happen depends very much on Barcelona and their bizarre instances there. I think the next the next challenge there will, will be the defense. I mean, Harry Maguire had perhaps his this um, as a as a top of a top level player. Um, Luke Shaw was often injured. You think Alex Delis was essentially starting games by by default. Pharrell Varane missed 17 Premier League games last season. Uh, Aaron Bissaka was neither here nor there. And Diogo Dallo is ambiguous. So the defence needs to be working out. I think there needs to be a collective centre to defend because you can't just keep buying individual centre-backs and just running it back. I think that's been sorted out. As you've seen in pre-season, Manchester United now press and press properly. Uh, they seem to use very just pressing a man who has the ball, but pressing on weak t- areas and also trying to block off certain passing lanes as well. Um, and then the final thing that Ten Hag, which is the one that's in the newspapers all the time, is the, does he want to keep Ronaldo? And can Manchester United score enough goals with or without Ronaldo? I don't know if he will solve that final one. The end of the season, probably. Yeah, it does seem like a, a, so you're looking at the squad, looking at people who've who've left the squad, uh, who's currently in it. Uh, yeah, you do you do question, you know, exactly where the goals are going to be coming from, especially yeah, because it's it's uncertain what's going to be happening with with Ronaldo's future. I mean, we'll get on to talk about him. I'd I'd put it in the agenda towards yeah towards the bottom half because I think it's yeah it's dominated news for quite a long time. So I'm sure I'm sure we will get onto it, but. In in the transfer business itself, and so I mean, just looking at some of the additions that have been made so far. Uh, obviously, very recently, Lissandro Martinez announced uh, as a, a centre back joining the club from from Ajax for about fifty one million. Uh, uh, there may have been some commentary around the fact that he's he's not the tallest, uh, which you, you may have seen, uh, but is un- undoubtedly sort of great on the ball and so you know, technically very capable it seems just to be very brief about it in terms of, sort of what they're looking for him to provide to the team but you can obviously expand on that Malaysia if I've been pronouncing that correctly um from, from Feyenoord as a as a young left back coming into the, the squad Christian Eriksen uh, sort of ultimately chose to to rock up at United as well after that really enjoyable sort of cameo season at Brentford that was really great um and Frankie de Jong, I've got here in sort of asterisks because, it, as you as you were mentioning there, it's unsure, you know, whether or not he is going to end up making the making the journey to United uh, as as you as you mentioned with Barcelona economic levers uh, and that. Let's see if they can <laughs> pull the the correct one uh, and whether Frankie and I think it also remains to be seen whether or not he's really up for the project as well, um, which is you know. Um, Another aspect of, I, I suppose, the United rebuild. And one player I've got here, even though he's not actually been signed or he's not a new addition, but I, I'm interested to talk about later on as well, is is Martial uh, mm-hmm. you know, returning from London, uh, from Sevilla. Because uh, from, from the glimpses that I saw preseason, and of course, yeah, we don't make too many big, big judgments from preseason, but knowing the way in which that 18-19 Ajax team played uh, and some of the skills that Martial you know, possesses, you do wonder whether or not this is a really big opportunity for him under Ten Hag this season. And then just before we go into so your thoughts on the business, outgoings, right? Cavani, Mata, Matic, Lingard, uh, the end of the Pogba era at United. Uh, one of your favourites is well, Andres Pereira, I think finally moved on uh, from the club as well this uh, this season. So there's a lot that's going on there, right? A lot of moving pieces. Just focusing on the in- incomings for now, I suppose. 
what do you make of the business that's been that's been done so far it's intriguing <laughs> so i think the way ten Hag is looking at this manchester united team is not the way i initially thought it would be i think i, I right. did a series on the athletic called shopping for ten Hag, where mm. i drew up a list of areas that i thought manchester united needed to strengthen and i thought you know going to this window manchester united needed to get two central midfielders a center forward and a right back um and we've now got to late july and manchester united have bought a center back someone who's normally an attacking midfielder and a left back yeah which is a little curious i think it was when Manchester United went out and purchased Lissandro Martinez that I really began to understand that Ten Hag is less likely to run back Manchester United the way they previously played and is more interested in essentially building a brand new spine of the team. Mm-hmm. And if you think about it that way, you know, Martinez will come in and play at left centre back and Harry Maguire will move over to right, where I thought Maguire would probably continue playing next to Rafael Varane this summer but Ten Hag wants something different. You consider Martinez's passing from deep uh, and how that could be improved by playing next to someone like Terrell Malassia, who's a very intense young fullback. Uh, mm. And then you get another bonus. You also consider that Christian Eriksen did play in slightly deeper areas of central midfield for Brentford last season and could possibly work in a pivot. And then you understand, oh, you might get a passing regulator or a metronome in, in, in deeper midfield, whereas previously United really struggled to hold on to the ball, and that's why they conceded quite a few goals early on in the second half. Then Frankie de Jong makes more sense. You understand why they want Frankie de Jong a bit more now. Um, so I'm looking at Manchester United now through the prism that Ten Hag wants to make IX 18 19 all over again. Interesting. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I, I caught I some of that, uh, some of your work there on sort of yeah, potential transfer targets. One thing that did st- stick out to me was just, um, I'm sure you enjoy answering uh, questions on this as well, but just you know, the, the different reasons why, uh, although he's a very nice player, a very good player, uh, why Ruben Neves wasn't the solution to that <laughs> issue as well, which I think came up quite a few times in the he summer. Is, he is a mainstay of, so I've, I've, this is my third season covering Manchester United now, and every single summer I've had, more than a dozen United fans ask me, what about Ruben Neves at Manchester United? And he's a... I've, I've spoken to Seb Saffold-Bloor, who, who works at TIFA. Yes. Uh, and Seb, you know, brilliant mind, has also talked about uh, Yuri Tielemans. Uh, Tielemans mm. is another player who a number of Manchester United fans have, have spoken about as well. Uh, about how Neves and Tielemans both seem to be essentially stuck in this sort of Premier League hinterland where if COVID... You know, if the COVID pandemic didn't arrive, both of these men, I could very easily have seen both of these men playing for Champions League clubs by now. But uh, due to the relative belt tightening that COVID has enforced um, and the small to medium flaws in each man's game that I will say are more to do with their physical assets rather than their technical ones, I think both men will probably stay at their clubs for next season, which is interesting. Uh, as far as I'm aware, Manchester United have been informed that Yuri Tillemans is available for 30 million. Um, but I don't believe Manchester United are interested in that. I think Tillemans, yeah. for his technical skill, hasn't got a great top speed. 
if that makes sense. I think when when if you're a team like uh, Eric Ten Hag's Manchester United, if you're a team like let's say Liverpool, one of your big weaknesses is defensive transition. What happens when you lose the ball on the edge of the opponent's box and they start steaming forward with four or five players? Um, and to stop that, you need someone who has recovery pace. And I don't think Tielemans has that. Um, and I, I, I think similarly about Ruben Neves. And I think that's why both men probably aren't going to make it yeah. into a top six club at the moment. Uh, can I ask you, as a Liverpool fan, what is your plan for central midfield? Because I'm looking at that middle three and I'm wondering if that's a little lightweight. Yeah, it was, it was. I think it's an interesting one for for, for Liverpool fans as well because I think if you were if you were to ask us at the end of last season, where do you you know where does this team need improving? I mean, there were already rumours, obviously, that Sadio Mane was um, potentially going to be on his way. So I think also just generally from the end of that season, there was a feeling that you know would a would a different kind of striker. Uh, you know, an Origi plus, which is sort of a horrible way to talk about Darwin Nunes, but, you know, sort of a striker that could do different kinds of things to the forwards that we already had. That felt like it could be a, a necessary addition to sort of the Swiss Army knife. And then, yeah, the midfield, right? So uh, it's it's, a, it's a really interesting discussion when you have a Liverpool fans. I think some people, everyone likes this squad, right? Everyone likes all the players mm-hmm. in the squad. They're all really nice lads, whatever. And um, But I think, if you look at last season for Liverpool, it was very interesting how we got involved in quite a few our uh, classics, Premier League classics. I'm sure there'll be some games that are going to be uh, played back in future years, right? And, uh, you know, the the Chelsea game springs to mind, where you're two 0 up at Stamford Bridge, uh, and yes, you're playing against some talented midfielders, but you allow yourself to be overrun uh, and pulled back into a into a contest when you think of this Liverpool side at their best. They are the kind that could don't they didn't need two goals. They could take one and and, and kill the game off if they wanted to when they won the title. So the, the my issue with the midfield was you, Liverpool were not controlling games on the ball from midfield. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it was they were leaving it to the creative players, the attackers, to blow teams out of the water. Uh, and if that didn't happen, maybe there'd be some individual brilliance. Uh, but very often the game was still quite open uh, and we would still be relying upon our defenders to be good at 1v1s, which they're excellent at. Um, so that was an issue. And that changed when Thiago and Fabinho were in the uh, the first team for a sustained period of time. And that was actually the same way in which Liverpool got the top four in the season behind closed doors. Everything sort of fell off and all the centre-backs were injured. Those two being fit and on the pitch together seemed to be sort of the magic ingredient. That was the platform. You kind of rely on that, right? Everyone sort of knows that Thiago is a wonderful player, but injury issues dictate he's not going to be around all all the time. Cater seemed to be available quite a lot, but not necessarily trusted all the time. So, yeah, I think think we're looking at that midfield and thinking that right side midfield role that Henderson plays, Mm. his injuries are getting more frequent now. Uh, His best asset was his energy. Is there somebody to come in, replace him in that role, uh, provide a bit more defensive cover, uh, you know, a bit more just physicality as you're talking about, you know, to, to deal with teams uh, trying to counter on us? Uh, Surprised it didn't come in. Uh, and uh, Klopp, you know, very sort of vociferous in his responses to those questions, right? You know, we've got tons of midfielders, you know, like, why are you asking me this? What's interesting about it is obviously that everybody knows that Liverpool were in for two or many, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> they, were, they were looking at that player, you look at the skills he possesses, sort of a very unique uh, sort of player on the market. When they didn't get him, I'm surprised that there was no other names that came out at all. 
Um, obviously, Carvalho has been added. Harvey Elliott has been added. They've been tested in sort of these wing positions in preseason. I think we're likely to see both of them more in midfield uh, in the season itself. Okay. Neither of them really. Well, I'm not. I'm, I'm not. I'm not so sure. We'll see. I I, I I think that's potentially what we're thinking about with Elliot because he's not going to replace uh, Mo Salah. So, yeah, I, 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 it's it's an interesting question. I think you're right to ask it. Lots of Liverpool fans have been sort of wondering about it. Um, but I suppose the feel-good factor is strong enough that we sort of override those concerns a little bit until it crops up inevitably, right, in, in the season. <laughs> uh, but we, we, we thought there might be a change of shape as well, to be honest, especially with Darwin Nunes joining but preseason has not necessarily indicated that too much. So I suppose we'll see as things go forward, you know, is there going to be a, a slight change to a double pivot? I don't know who necessarily can play in that double pivot apart from the two I mentioned, right? So, uh, but moving back to United just briefly anyway, um, <laughs> all the outgoings, right? There's lots of, lots of players who've left there. Cavani, and I mentioned Mata, Matic, Lingard, Pogba, Andres Pereira. Uh, just briefly, I mean, lots of departures there. I'm not, I'm not going to get you to go through all of them. Um, but in terms of your feeling about those players who've departed, is there a shared sort of symbolism about some of those players who've departed and sort of how their time at United went? Yeah, I think all these players can point to maybe six months where they played very well. Um, and then six months where the situation of United made things very difficult for them to play well. And I think all these players have left knowing their Manchester United career is not the highlight of their football career. Uh, I don't think Manchester United and Manu Matic is the best version of Matic. I don't think United Cavani was the best version of Cavani. I, I certainly don't think United Pogba was the best version of Paul Pogba. Um, and I think the question for all of the party players is not, you know, what went wrong. But but I think United fans and United staff need to look inwards and go, why couldn't we get West Ham, Jesse Lingard here? Why couldn't we get Paul Pogba to play like how he plays for France here? Yeah. Why couldn't yeah. we get um, Chelsea 2013, Matic here? And a lot of this is to do with age, injuries, whatnot. But also I think a lot of it is, I mean, I'm talking to you right now and I honestly think there is only a, I think there's only maybe a four month period in Paul Pogba's Manchester United career where he was played in his best position under a manager who believed in him right and that you yeah. know on the interim Ole Gunnar Solskjaer where they played the 4-3-3 and that quickly unravels when Ander Herrera gets injured and then all of a sudden Paul Pogba makes his first public talk about how Real Madrid are his dream yeah um, and I think I think that's concerning I think Ten Hag has come in and something that I did find interesting was apparently Ten Hag has banned personal chefs. Uh, and, huh. and, I th- and I think yeah, that, was, that was when I went, huh, interesting, in that obviously we know certain Premier League football players prefer to have a personal chef to make sure they, can, they have food more in keeping with their dietary needs and, and to be more focused. But also it seems as if Ten Hag is viewing it as a, I want to, be entirely in charge of what you're eating. And if you're eating at Manchester United and you're eating in a properly structured Manchester United, you shouldn't need to go elsewhere. And I think that is probably what Man United need to do. I think there's a number of players at Manchester United that have their own personal trainers, that have their own medical team because they don't believe the facilities currently at Manchester United aren't good enough. And if Ten Hag can, can 
get those facilities, can get that softer pastoral care to to some, you know, not even I don't even think best in the Premier League because obviously you know Liverpool, Manchester City, and other clubs have have a large head start. But if you can get that to closer to a top four level, United will benefit to it. Uh, and they, that's my that's my big thought that no, none of the players that have departed Manchester United this summer have I gone. I really wish I could keep them because with all of them, I go. You're not going to be the best player you can be at this football club, and that's a real shame. Yeah, and so I, I think I think that probably is the the neatest segue we're going to get to talking about you know uh, Cristiano Ronaldo um, and. Um, the impact he had at the club last season, both mm-hmm. positive and negative, um, and then also, you know, the, the fact that very early on, of course, he's, he's, he he made his uh, intention known that he would like to be leaving the club, um, and now um, it doesn't seem as though there is a you know, clubs with uh, strong enough economic levers, if you go back to that <laughs> phrase, to to make that work for for Cristiano. So he turned up to training. I think it's still unsure as to whether or not he he will remain at the club. But let's just talk about. Um, let's just presume that he um, he he may do. So, in, in terms of him at the club at the moment, I mean, just a straightforward question. I mean, do you believe that United would be better off with or without him next season? Just this, specifically this next season. You, know, you were talking about this aside. It looks like it's maybe a little bit light on goals. I know you you wrote a piece recently around do United need him? You know, for for all the goals that he he brings. Of course, there are. Uh, downsides to his involvement in a side now, especially at his age. Um, so yeah, just just tell us a little bit about. I, I, I suppose at the, by the end of last season, what you were thinking about. Okay, having this version of Cristiano Ronaldo in in the side, and, and especially now with the new context of Ten Hag, um, sort of what what you think about whether or not you United should be keeping him this season. So my my big thoughts I wrote in a, in an article not long after Ronaldo scored a hat trick to beat Norwich. Um, so you know, they, oh, yeah. they, they beat Norwich 3-2 and I wrote an article titled The Cristiano Ronaldo Paradox. And Manchester United last season had a lot of fans go, Ronaldo is the problem. And then there was sort of the counter group that said, well, look at the league table. Ronaldo's our top scorer. Where would Manchester United be without Ronaldo? Yeah, the team is terrible, but it's not Ronaldo's fault. And if it wasn't for him, right. we'd be in a worse position. And I've always thought that was an incorrect way to look at Ronaldo. Because when you say, where would we be without Ronaldo's goals? You have to remember, goals aren't in aggregate. Uh, you can't just take out Ronaldo's goals and pretend United play the rest, the, the entire season the same way with only nine outfielders. You have to put someone else in there. And it became quite apparent, especially in that period between January to, to early March, that United needed a player who could Main, occupy the last line of defence. And that should have been Edison Cavani, but Cavani was injured, unavailable, or head was elsewhere. Uh, and in the in the game he played against Burnley, Cavani played about 45 minutes, 60 minutes, and it looked as if one of the best front threes I've seen at United was Cavani up front, Rashford on the right, and Jadon Sancho on the left. And with Cavani properly stood on the last line of defence, there was more space, and Cavani's movement created space for others. Whereas Ronaldo's space is very much focused on the ball. He he drops into the left half space and goes hunting for the ball, especially when he thinks United can't sustain attacking pressure, which they can't because they haven't really got a, a number six. So this creates problems. Um, so you can't just 
goals don't work in aggregate. And the way Ronaldo gets his goals are, especially at his age now, at 36, he doesn't have the explosive burst of pace he did 10 years ago. There have been two or three times where I think there's been centre-backs almost shocked at the, how, at the fact that they can catch up with him. Um, and mm-hmm. he takes so many, he will get you 15 goals a season, but he takes 60 to 70 shots to do that. Now, if your football team like is able to manufacture 120 shots a season, great, go for it. If you're a team that manufactures 90 shots a season, then you have a problem. And I think that was the big thing in United. And I think the big question isn't, would Manchester United be better off without Cristiano Ronaldo? But is, but the question is, is it wise to build around a 37-year-old striker? Mm-hmm. And I don't really want to talk about you know his his legacy and, and what he's done previously and whatnot, but saying start this season, you're going to a season with a 37 year old striker who's going to turn 38 and his focus primarily is on the champions league and the yeah. world cup. It's not, and his focus is not about um, helping youngsters improve themselves. His focus is not about necessarily team accolades. His focus right now is he's got two or three years left at the peak of peak ish of his powers, what we can play in in the top competitions, and he wants to get as many goals as possible. Yeah. Uh, and I'm I'm being blunt here. It's not about assists. It's not about this. It's not even necessarily about team trophies. He wants goals. Is that wise to build around? And the answer, I think, is probably not. And then you get into the difficult thing of Manchester United would look weak if they let Man- if 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 they let Ronaldo leave now. They might look even weaker if they keep him after this fracas and nonsense about not going to preseason training and whether or not you know this this he said they said sort of back and forth. So uh, in yeah. terms of for pure footballing reasons, you should probably move him on. For financial reasons, you should probably try and move him on. For the softer intangibles, it might be unwise to move him on this summer, and that's why football is uh, fun if not infuriating. Yeah, as sort of, I mean, as as delicately as I think Ten Hag has, has has tried to handle it. To be honest, I think I think yeah, as there's arguments you 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 put forward there. It's pretty it's pretty simple. I mean, I think it, it seems like a, a simple footballing decision if, if you're embarking upon a new project, building a new spine to the side, and trying to change their identity. Really, uh, a new manager. <laughs> new ideas um you don't necessarily want to be lumbered with a, a player who's, who's not looking for new ideas he's <laughs> not looking for uh, a, a a new phase of his career he's as you mentioned trying to squeeze out as many goals as as possible so yeah it'd be interesting to see what happens with that just briefly before we touch upon sort of pre-season and then just closing with expectations for the season really but if, if he was to leave um, and there's not a lot of time. I, I recognise that sort of left um, necessarily for, for players to come in. W- what kind of striker do you think that Ten Hag would be looking for, based on what you just mentioned there around sort of when Sancho looked at his best, when Rashford looked at his best, and also um, one thing I wanted to, to ask is because I mentioned Martial earlier on. Uh, you know, is there an opportunity for some some redemption for for some of those players? I mean, Sancho's got, got many years ahead of him. Martial, uh, I'm fascinated by whether or not he can sort of um, sort of revitalize his career at United. Rashford as well, of course. You know, is he seemed like he would be, be much better suited uh, to a manager like Ten Hag? 
Um, so sort of two two questions there. The first one on being what kind of striker do you think would would be looked at if uh, if Ronaldo did move on? Um, and then also those three that I mentioned, Sancho, Rashford, Martial, um, just just how big an opportunity do you think they've got here? Uh, so Ten Hag is a really interesting manager. He doesn't seem to have a set, fixed kind idea of, of what a striker is. I, mean, yeah. I think this is this is to his uh, something we should praise him for. And I think his, his, his experience working in Bayern Munich's reserves and at Go Ahead Eagles and Utrecht and and Ajax, he's used. He's not afraid of pumping it long to the big lad. Uh, Sebastian Haller is six foot three, but he plays a bit <laughs> like a five foot nine player. Um, but yeah, he, he he doesn't mind some crosses, and I think Ten Hag's IX team, the first one of eighteen nineteen, tend to, to overload one flank and then switch it as they approach the final third. Whereas you know, last season's one was was a little bit more settled possession um, and had more build up plays, particularly through Steven Berghaus. So I think you know the ideal Manchester United striker for what Ten Hag wants, unfortunately, already plays for Man City. Uh, it's not Haaland, but actually Julian Alvarez. I think Ten Hag ideally wants a sort of young Edison Cavani archetype, uh, a sort of pit bull striker who doesn't need mm. necessarily too many touches, doesn't need the ball play to feet too much, uh, can run the channels, uh, and is also good in the air. That's Alvarez. Uh, and it's really annoying that he's at City. I think they're also, you know, I think someone like Tammy Abraham would be, I think Ten Hag would enjoy working Tammy Abraham. I also think Victor Oshiman at Napoli would also be fantastic. But Tammy Abraham and Oshiman would cost the better part of, I think, 80 million each. Uh, so so that's a difficult thing. We are also where that apparently if Manchester United do move on Cristiano Ronaldo, they might not necessarily go for a striker. They might try and go out and get reunite Ten Hag with someone like Anthony at Ajax. Um, huh. Which does provoke questions as to how that would work. I think if Anthony came in, he'd play at the right side of attack which would mean Sancho moved to the left side and then you'd have inverted wingers and then it become a question of playing one of Martial or Marcus Rashford as the number nine which I'm intrigued I'm not sure if that's going to get you 40 to 50 goals a season uh, and I think those are the questions that I think ten, the way Ten Hag wants to play football allows two or three ways to build an attack and I wouldn't be surprised if Marcus Rashford plays more games as the number nine this season, particularly now Christian Eriksen is here because Christian Eriksen can also play on the left-hand side and, and give two ball creators, you know, Eriksen and Fernandes makes Rashford more viable as a number nine. So that's one thing. I think another big question is, is as you've asked me, is, you know, if you look at the attacking front three that United played against Liverpool in Bangkok, it was Martial up front, Rashford left, Sancho on the right-hand side and, and Sancho and Rashford swap flanks quite often. And Martial was, was a pretty good with his hold-up play, Martial's probably the best striker United have, even with Ronaldo, with his back towards goal. Uh, and I've been burned before by Anthony Martial. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a former card-carrying member of Martial <laughs> FC. And, and, and Martial has, has been quite popular with a number of Manchester United fans. We know Joel Glazer is a fan as well, for reasons I still can't quite explain. Uh, and it looks as if he will be the starting number nine for the first game against Brighton, whether he maintains that in the weeks to follow, much relies on Ronaldo. Uh, Martial's a really interesting player in that when he emerged at 18, he had the finishing ability of a 25-year-old. Now he's, you know, 25. 
26. He's got he's still got the same finishing ability, but yeah. also his match reading intelligence is not really kicked on since the age of 18. That could change if Ten Hag has time with him on the training pitch and Martial wants to learn, but it's a big could. Uh, so yeah. uh, I'm looking at it. And while I think some fans have looked at preseason, God, Martial's going to get 20 league goals a season. I am more cautious. And I think anything more than 12 league goals a season would be a bonus for him. Yeah, and I understand. But yeah, I think every every club's uh, fan base has has players who've who've burned them a number of times because you you just can't you can't quite get rid of that last bit of faith that you have in them, um, especially sort of remembering what they could have been when they first arrived, for example. So, yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be an interesting one for him. I, I, I just I just sensed that maybe there is maybe the door is slightly ajar for him. Uh, and yeah, I think I think you're right there to mention if he if he wants it, uh, and if there's the opportunity is there for him in terms of Ronaldo not being there, for example. You, you wonder how 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 strongly he's going to grasp it. So, just to, to sort of begin to wrap up here, I mean, I, I don't want to be asking around any sort of analysis of preseason necessarily, but yeah, it's the first chance you, you you've got to see Ten Hag you know, implement some of his different you know, sort of tactical ideas. Um, yes, there's been a lot of rejoicing online at seeing some some evidence of some 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 genuine. Uh, high-level coaching as well that seems to be absent for a, a couple of players for a while. Um, what have you noticed? What have been the big takeaways from preseason so far? Uh, and then I suppose just moving on from that, what are your expectations then for this season in, in terms of sort of uh, not necessarily where you think United are going to be finishing, but expectations for I think what you think Ten Hag wants out of this season? What would be a successful season for Ten Hag in Ten Hag's mind? So I should preface this with the fact that I have not spoken to Eric Ten Hag yet. Uh, I haven't. Been, mm. I wasn't there for his official unveiling, uh, and uh, we're now back to to face to face press conferences. So I haven't had the opportunity to speak to him after a game yet. So I'm looking forward sure. to that. I'm going to ask him a couple of questions, especially about left footed players and in defence, because that seems to be something he's <laughs> particularly interested in as well. So I mean, the first thing that I've, I'm really impressed by is just how much more structured Manchester United look. Um, so one of Ten Hag's big things, is he wants to play possession-based football. He wants to play settled possession. Um, Manchester United are using uh, variable pressing, which is an Italian concept originally. Um, so sort of slow, so fast. They're not going to press like Liverpool of 2018-19, where they're just constantly in your face. They are going to play at a slower pace, sometimes lull the opposition into a false sense of security and then grab the ball. And I think there were goals against Crystal Palace where United strung together six or seven passes, lost the ball, and then immediately counter-pressed and then counter-attacked from that. So I think that's really interesting when you consider United weren't really a good pressing team and absolutely did not counter-press whatsoever last season. The fact that they are uh, look like a reasonable pressing team and already counter-pressing quite well will be good. I am interested in the fact that Terrell Malassia was playing like an inverted fullback as well. Uh, and that seems to be something that he want, that Ten Hag wants to bring in as well. So that is promising. I am, I am not quite convinced how good Diogo Dallo is yet, but I think Ten Hag is, has seen him as a, something of a blank slate and is relishing the opportunity to, to build himself a perfect fullback, which is quite nice. I think a reasonable aim for Manchester United this season is... 
Europa League, a deep run in the Europa League and pushing that top four race as, as to the last week of the season. Um, if you know, if Manchester United could seize upon any perceived weakness in, say, Chelsea and, and, and grab fourth, then I think that'd be fantastic. But at the moment, I think United's best chance of qualifying for the Champions League next season is probably going to be to win the Europa League. Mm. Interesting to hear that that structure is so evident already, yeah, given the limited time that he's had. He said to work with everybody, I'm sure it's going to be even more apparent by the end of end of the season. Um, has there been any other business that you've you you've really liked the look of from some of the other clubs who've been who've been busy so far? Any? Oh, I think. Any, I, I think it's. Balance? I think it's absolutely absurd that Crystal Palace have, have signed the Corey, uh <laughs> yeah. for for less than thirty five million. He's outstanding. Um, he, I, he that is one of those signings where you realize how much stronger the Premier League is compared to other leagues now. Like if Crystal Palace can get a player of that talent, um, then a great I think Grace Robertson, fantastic football writer at Grace on Football on Twitter, has said, I think one big problem with the Bundesliga now isn't that buying buy your best players, but also the fact that the Premier League buys your best players too. You if you look at the Premier League now, it, it's full of players who maybe five years ago would have ended up at Bayern Munich or even managers that would have ended up Bayern Munich but now in the Premier League. I think the fact that Samaka plays for West Ham is an absolute triumph. And again, of just how did an Italian team not in the Champions League not manage to buy this man? You know, I very much thought he would end up at one of the Milan clubs and now he's playing for West Ham, which is really exciting. Kamara at Villa was another one that was kind of... Oh, as well, right? oh, I would have... I, I'm furious that Aston Villa got him. He's the exact sort of player Manchester United should have been getting, even if Manchester United are going to get Frank Aduin or whatnot. I think Kamara is of, he's so good at being at that sort of scrappy tackling number six that he makes basically any player in the top half of the Premier League better. Um, so he, yeah, he's one. And I'm really intrigued by what Nottingham Forest are doing. I think Awani, who, you know, ex Liverpool. Yes, I think you've, yeah. I think you had a, you had a sell on clause there as well. So you, you've got a little bit, of, you've got a nice chunk of change from this sale as well. <laughs> sure. um, and he, he was really good at Union Berlin. I think he was in, in the top five, maybe top six, in the Golden Boot race for the Bundesliga last season. And while he, he, he looks like a proven Bundesliga striker right now. He played in the two up front uh, and was very good on transition, based attacking and really good at counter attacking. I think, you know, Nottingham Forest are going to primarily need to counterattack. They're not really going to play too many games where they where they dominate possession. So he's going to be one player that I will probably look to add to my fantasy football team, if that makes sense. No, it makes perfect sense. Yeah, I think there's there's a there's quite a few interesting moves. Yeah, that that, that, that have gone on, and even I think in the, outside the Premier League, just seeing seeing that Dybala unveiling. I think something you were talking about around you, know, you wouldn't necessarily that wasn't the plan for him to end up necessarily at Roma, uh, but he's he, he's he's going to become uh, a, a a hero there now. You imagine a uh, a star based upon how they tend to adore players who sign for their clubs like that. So I think that's going to be an interesting one as well, but. Anyway, I think I think we've we've covered enough ground here, covered a lot. Um, so yeah, really appreciate it as always. You know, uh, your your insight into United, especially as we as we wind up for the new season, as as we were talking about right at the start of the pod. Um, just before we go, as well, I, I I'd be I'd be wrong not to um, uh, to mention some plugs. So obviously, yeah, since, since the last time we 
we had a chat on football, at least on the pods anyway. Um, you are now an award-winning writer. I think <laughs> I sort of been mentioning that book of the year, this uh, British uh, British Book Awards, uh, book of the year, children's nonfiction as well for Euro Champion, that book that you, you obviously wrote with with Marcus Rashford. And there's another one that's just come out, of course, uh, You Can Do It. I just wanted to ask you um, before we before we go, I mean, tell us what the goal was with that with that second book in collaboration with uh, with with uh, with Rashford. So the first book was such a success. And thank you to anyone listening. If you mentioned it to a friend or picked up a copy or even flicked through it in a bookshop, um, that we really thought the lessons of the first book were about teaching tools, trying to empower children and, and the next generation and making them understand that no matter who they were, what their background was or how much money their parents earned, that they, they were important. And they could they could affect the world around them, and and no one should be out there telling them that they can't do things because of who they are or their background. And we thought step two, or, or where the next book could go, would be to teach them that not only are they important, but everyone around them is important too. And if you work together, you can do amazing things. So Marcus told me this story about how when he was a kid growing up in Withenshaw, quite a few people in the neighbourhood knew his mum was working two jobs and wasn't always around. Uh, and sometimes they needed a little bit of financial help. And while it wasn't spoken, every now and again, a neighbour or a friend in the area w- would, would chip in a little bit and, and do their best to help out. Uh, and he told me the story about uh, an uh, off-licence by his house that was you know, had a run by a, a Jamaican man who would sell patties and other hot food as well. And every now and again, Marcus would come in, you know, shoes all muddy from playing football in the park and, and get himself a co- can of Coca-Cola or a patty. And the shopkeeper would just let him have it. And he'd tell him, don't worry about it. I've sorted out with your mum. You don't have to give me five quid for this or you know, two or three quid for this food. You can just go home. And then it was a couple of years later where he realised that he, you know, the shopkeeper never had an agreement with his mum. He just gave him this food because he understood, you know, it's just nice to be nice. Good to look after a kid in the area. And he thought, well, if I had G, he called them G-man, helping after him growing up, then wouldn't it be great if everyone, every child, every kid in the area had someone who could look after them that way? And also to teach children that, you know, one day they might want to be that person for someone else. And that was the intention for this book. The you can do it is very much a collective you and very much about things like environmentalism, being a good ally um, and, and trying to affect change in your environment around you. Yeah, no, it sounds, sounds like you hit it on the, hit it on the mark again. So uh, yeah, I mean, I, I bought the, I bought the first book as, um, as I obviously was going to do as well. Uh, and uh, sort of get, gave it to a, to a boy that we know who's, uh, yeah, I think it's an understatement to say he absolutely loved it and pretty much takes it everywhere with him. So I'm sure he, yeah, will He'll be getting a second. Uh, he'll be getting a second in the uh, in the series um, to, uh, <laughs> Thank to you, read man. as well. Um, but uh, yeah, I know plenty of parents who listen to this as well. So I'm, I'm sure if 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 your children enjoyed the, the first book or, or or they didn't get a chance to read it, I I definitely encourage you to check that out and especially the second one as well. I think you it's it's hard to listen to everything that Carl just said there and uh, and not think that's worth putting in front of your children's eyes. So. Um, Thanks, as always, Carl, for coming on. Um, uh, and uh, for all those who've been listening uh, as well, 
to this uh, sort of uh, this rival sort of recon series we're doing ahead of ahead of the season starting off again. Um, yeah, there's two more two more in this series to go. Uh, we can speak into Arsenal, uh, getting Arsenal perspective rather, and also getting the uh, the Chelsea perspective has been an eventful uh, time at Chelsea to to say the least. I'm, I'm thinking about how I'm going to cram everything onto that agenda. But um, yeah, thanks again, Carl, and uh, thanks to everyone for listening. Uh, we'll be back with the next one of this series uh, next week. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Anfield Index show. Please be sure to subscribe to our channel so future podcasts find their way to your device automatically. There's nothing quite like fan engagement, and we'd love to know what you think of anything discussed on this show. The best way to get in touch is over on our free Discord community, where both podcasters and listeners debate the hottest LFC topics 24-7. Sign up free now at anfieldindex.com forward slash discord. You won't regret it. You can also follow us on Twitter at Anfield Index and find us on Facebook by searching for Anfield Index. Oh, and before you go, we'd love it if you could leave us a five-star review on your favourite podcast app. It only takes a couple of seconds and it means the world to the people who create these free shows. Sports Social Podcast Network.